The great General Montgomery said to his young troops one day, Gentlemen, don't even think of marriage until you have mastered the art of warfare. Why is marriage such a potential warfare? Why does it seem so tough to have a meaningful relationship with someone in the context of marriage? One author expressed it this way, quote, The most needful relationship is the one that occurs between a man and a woman in a marriage, yet the fulfillment of it is so elusive. Having a meaningful, lasting relationship with somebody that gets better, richer, and more fulfilling is very, very rare. In fact, whenever we see marriage portrayed, it is usually portrayed as a fighting, unfaithful, discontented, bitter relationship ending in separation or divorce, end quote. One of the reasons marriage can be difficult is because Satan attacks marriage. It's interesting to go through the book of Genesis and notice that as soon as sin entered the world, Satan began to attack marriage. He knows that he can devastate the world by destroying relationships at their most important level. So immediately after the fall in Genesis 3, we see Satan corrupting marriage. In Genesis chapter 4, there is polygamy. In chapter 9, there are evil sexual thoughts and words. In chapter 16, there is adultery. In chapter 19, there is homosexuality. In chapter 34, there is fornication and rape. In chapter 38, there is incest and prostitution. In chapter 39, there is evil seduction. All of these attacks on marriage before you even get out of the book of Genesis. So with the curse of sin that is in our world and Satan's attacks, marriage can be difficult. And frankly, most people aren't willing to work at it. Most aren't willing to do what is necessary to have a meaningful, fulfilling marriage. Most aren't willing to make the necessary investment. Instead of working on the relationship, they dream of having a different one. That's the world's solution. If the relationship isn't all you want it to be, then just get a new one. Listen to the words of one author on this subject. Quote, Our society denies the reality and throws the fantasy in front of us. Just think about the songs of our culture. They are about affairs, wild living, the perfect girl, the perfect man. It's going to be the right relationship. It's all going to be the way we thought it would be. I found the beautiful face, the attractive body, the wonderful personality, I'm going to finally have a relationship with no boredom, no unfaithfulness, no breakup, no pain, no loneliness, no leaving, no having to start all over again. And it's going to be this way until we finally die. But it's all a pipe dream. The world is looking for a special relationship, but there's no way they're going to have it. So sadly, our world lives with a whole bunch of illusions and fantasies, end quote. Those are the same concepts that are pumped into so many minds through television and the movies. So what kind of chance does marriage have when people sit and listen to that kind of philosophy regarding human relationships? What does the future hold for marriage? Look with me at 2 Timothy 3 by way of introduction this morning. 2 Timothy After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 
First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. Second Timothy, chapter three. This is not a pretty picture, but an honest one. Verse one, Second Timothy three one. But know this, that in the last days perilous or times of stress will come. In other words, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. That's Paul's opening statement here in chapter 3. And then, in verses 2 through 5, he describes what will characterize the last days. As we read these verses, think about marriage and the strain these characteristics put on marriage. Verse 2, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Self-love will characterize the last days. Men, women, teenagers, children who are self-centered, selfish, Absorbed in self, self-indulgent, and self-satisfying. People will be looking at what they can get out of a relationship, not what they can give in a relationship. People will be more and more in love with themselves. Verse 2 also says, Pride will characterize the last days. Instead of, instead of an attitude of mutual submission, marriage will be characterized by a pride that will not give in and will not yield its rights or its wants or its desires or its preferences. So the picture is not very bright for marriage. That's why we need to go back to God's pattern for marriage. By way of introduction to our text in 1 Peter 3, Turn with me, please, back to the left where we're at now, to Ephesians chapter 5. Our text this morning in 1 Peter 3 is on marriage. So we're going to begin in Ephesians to introduce the text in 1 Peter 3. Ephesians chapter 5. God's counsel is not very popular today, but it is desperately needed. Sadly, it is virtually ignored even by many Christians. What is God's pattern? God's pattern is mutual submission. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God, or submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, out of reverence for Christ. God's pattern is mutual submission. The wife submits to the headship of her husband, and the husband submits by loving his wife sacrificially. Coming off of that overarching statement in verse 21, the Holy Spirit guides Paul into some specific statements. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. First of all, men, I want you to notice something about this passage. Please notice that this exhortation is directed toward the wife. What is my point? My point is this. It is not your responsibility to make sure that your wife submits to you. This verse doesn't say, Husbands, see to it that your wife submits to you. No, that's not what it says. Submission can't be demanded. It can only be granted. Same thing goes for love, which is mentioned down in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Love can't be demanded. It can only be granted. 
So in verse 22, God directs the exhortation to the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now it's important that we understand that this exhortation is not cultural. That is what some people try to say today. They say this was something that was cultural back then, but it doesn't really apply today. To be consistent, if that is so, then verse 25 is also cultural, where it says, Husbands, love your wives. That isn't cultural, and neither is verse 22. So the first individual exhortation in this passage is for the wife to submit to the headship of her husband. Now please understand something. Submission has absolutely nothing to do with who is superior and who is inferior. The issue is not essence, but function. The husband is not superior to the wife. The wife is not inferior to the husband. Allow me to illustrate this in other relationships. For example, think about submission in the Godhead. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This raises a question. Is Jesus Christ inferior to God? Not in the least. Jesus is fully God. Truly God. Then why does it say God is the head of Christ? For function in the Trinity. In personhood, they are equal. In essence, they are equal. But in function, Jesus Christ submits to the Father. It's the same way within a marriage, according to God's design. Men are not superior. Women are not inferior. It's just that there has to be submission for function. And ladies, please understand that contrary to contemporary thinking, this is not a degrading concept. Wives, you are never more Christ-like, never more like your Savior than when you willingly submit to the headship of your husband because when you do, you are patterning your life after your Savior, Jesus Christ. So God says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. But then he proceeds further to give the attitude of submission. At the end of verse 22, he says, he says as to the Lord. Wives, when you submit to your husband, it shouldn't be with the attitude, okay, I'll do it, Turkey, but this is really rough. If you only knew what I was sacrificing for the sake of spirituality. No, no. The perspective of a Christian wife should be that by submitting to her husband, she is actually submitting to Jesus Christ. That's the vertical perspective on marriage. Instead of a merely horizontal focus, this is the perspective every believer should have in everything. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. What a difference it makes in our responsibilities in life when we do them as unto the Lord and not unto people. That brings us to the, reasons for, the reason for submission. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. A wife who willingly submits to her husband with a beautiful attitude is an example of a believer who willingly submits to Jesus Christ. 
On the other side of the coin, a wife who doesn't submit willingly and joyfully to her husband is saying that it is optional whether or not believers submit to Jesus Christ. So I'll say it this way. One of the best ways, not the only way, but one of the best ways a Christian wife can model the Christian life is by her relationship to her husband. You see, there's more to this than just having a good marriage. God wants wives to demonstrate by their relationship to their husbands how Christians ought to relate to Christ. And that's why this is so important. With all this as background, let's turn to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Our text this morning addresses wives, and then next week we'll address husbands. We'll just take the text, how it unfolds, and that's why we didn't continue through Ephesians 5 in our introduction and look at the verses on husbands, because we're going to follow the text in the book that we've been studying recently, namely 1 Peter. So please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror." If you were with us for the last message in this series then you know that at the end of chapter 2, Peter has been addressing a group of believers who were in some extremely difficult circumstances in life. He was addressing Christian slaves, many of whom had masters that were harsh. Needless to say, that would be very tough to deal with in life. As Peter wrote words of encouragement to those Christian slaves in their difficult circumstances, he thought of another group of people who faced difficult circumstances, and that is Christian wives who are married to unsaved husbands. That is what prompted him to write the words we just read. It goes without saying that a Christian wife who deeply loves the Lord Jesus would want nothing more than to see her non-Christian husband come to faith in the Lord Jesus. So in this passage, Peter tells wives how to influence or impact husbands who are disobedient to the Word of God. Let's look at his Holy Spirit-directed counsel. Verse 1, he says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. The first issue we need to deal with is the issue of the spiritual condition of the husbands mentioned in this verse. Peter describes them as those who do not obey the word. 
in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, Peter has spoken of disobedience as the mark of unbelievers and obedience as the mark of believers. Therefore, the primary focus of his instruction is Christian wives who are married to non-Christian husbands. However, that doesn't mean that this instruction is irrelevant to a Christian wife who is married to a disobedient Christian husband. So the husbands in view in this text may be unsaved or saved, Christian or non-Christian, but they are not obedient to the Word of God. How should a Christian wife handle that kind of situation? By the way, isn't this another reminder of how practical God's Word is? I mean, this is such a common scenario in the church of Jesus Christ. So common. How should a Christian wife handle this kind of situation? The first thing the Holy Spirit says here is the same thing we saw in Ephesians 5. He says, be submissive to your own husbands. You're not going to win your husband by fighting with him and arguing with him and resisting him. That is not appealing or attractive. In fact, it's a turnoff. And you know the saying, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. So Peter reminds wives that it's not your words that are going to impact your husband. It's your actions. It's your character. It's your behavior. This is a good time to pause to make an important point about Bible study. Very often, when God gives instructions or exhortations to us, He does so because He knows our tendencies, and He knows our weaknesses, and He knows our struggles. Thus, He zeroes in on what we need to be aware of and what we need to hear. In other words, He doesn't just speak in vague generalities. He speaks to specific issues in our lives, specific tendencies in our lives. I believe this verse is another case in point or another illustration of that fact. Ladies, if you will be intellectually honest and objective, then you will admit that it is a general tendency of many women to assume that the best way they are going to get through to their husbands is by talking them into changes. God says just the opposite. The most effective way to make an impact on your husband is not with your words, it's with your conduct. It's with your character. It's with your behavior. Don't preach to your husband. Live a transformed life in front of him. Verse 2, he says, When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I think the ESV translation has captured the essence of this verse by translating it, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That's what the Lord is saying here. The Holy Spirit through Peter says that a woman who wants to win her husband to the Lord does it not by nagging him, but by living a godly life in front of him. Now, a lot of wives say, well, well, I would submit to my husband if he were the right kind of husband. But these verses are written especially for the wife who has the wrong kind of husband. These verses are written to a wife who has a husband who doesn't obey the Word of God. And what is God's instruction? It is this. Wives, it is not what you say, 
that wins a disobedient husband, but it's what you are. As one man put it, the loving, gracious submission of a Christian woman to her unsaved husband is the strongest evangelistic tool she has. End quote. It's interesting to note that Peter uses the word fear in this verse. Most of our versions translate the word respectful or reverence, depending on your your version. Both are valid ways to translate the word because it is a word that goes in two directions. Let me explain. When this word is used in reference to a Godward focus, then the emphasis is on reverence, and it is translated that way. When the word is used in reference to a human focus, then the emphasis is on respect. So Peter could be referring to either or to both. In other words, he could be telling wives to have a reverence for God in their actions, in their responsibilities as a wife, or he could be telling wives to have a respect for their husbands, or he could be encouraging both since both are proper. Ladies, if you want to impact your husband, then make sure your life exhibits a reverence for God and a respect for your husband. That's the first principle Peter addresses here. Behavior. Character. The second principle Peter discusses is values. Verse 3. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward such as arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible or imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Here in verses 3 and 4, Peter is addressing the value system of the wife. Does she value internal beauty More or external beauty? Which does she value more? By the way, verse 3 has really been twisted by a lot of people and many preachers down through the years. Please notice that it does not say that it is wrong for a woman to fix her hair. It does not say that it's wrong for a woman to wear jewelry. If that's what the verse is teaching, then it's also teaching it's wrong for a woman to wear clothes. Because it says all three. It says arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on, and most of our translations have fine in italics. That word is not in the original. Putting on clothes is literally what it says. So to be consistent, if you say that the text is saying it's wrong for a woman to fix her hair and to wear jewelry, then it's wrong for her to wear clothes. That's obviously not what it's saying. The issue here is what is the wife's value system? What is her focus? This is really an interesting study in translation. See the word adornment or beauty in your, your Bible? In the original text, that is the word world in the Greek text, the word world. But the translators didn't think that it would make sense wording it that way, so they translated it adornment or beauty, depending on what translation you use. But the literal word is world. So let me paraphrase verse 3 by using the original word from the Greek text. What Peter is saying is this. Ladies, don't make your world revolve around things like wearing jewelry, fixing your hair, and putting on fine apparel. Don't make that your world. 
If you want to impact your husband, you can't have the same value system the world has. It's very obvious that the world centers on external beauty because, frankly, they have no concept of internal beauty. No idea of that. So the world exalts external beauty because it really doesn't even know how to talk about internal beauty, character. It's amazing how many products in our culture are advertised by using beautiful women. It doesn't matter what the product is if it has anything to do with a woman. Because that's just our world. And what Peter is saying here is this. Wives, don't get caught up in that kind of value system. Value internal beauty. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold to say, all that matters is external beauty. That's not true. Don't let that be your world. Don't let that dominate your thinking. Verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible or imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Those are things that are valuable and those are things that really make a relationship last and rich. It's your heart. It's the internal beauty. Now let's not get imbalanced in this area. No wife is going to win an unsaved husband if she goes around looking like an unmade bed. That isn't the point of the passage at all. It's, it would be a, a distortion of the passage. The point is not to neglect the external, but rather concentrate on the internal. The, the text is not saying that there is virtue in trying to look unattractive. That would be distorting God's word. It is telling a wife not to be ostentatious or obsessive in her appearance, so that that's her life, that's her world, that's her focus, that's what dominates her attention. It's saying that should not be your world. Instead, you need to make sure that you focus on internal character, internal beauty. I mean, just as an illustration of why this is so important, surely you've noticed in our culture, if you follow it at all, that some of the most beautiful women in the world can't stay married to any man. And I'm not implying it's always the woman's fault, but that's a fact. Because there's no character there. There's no internal beauty. So Peter is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, listen, Christian women, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, force you into its mold. Too many women are completely preoccupied with external beauty and give little to no thought about internal beauty. You need to make sure that your heart is beautiful because that's what comes out in your life and that's what comes out in your relationships. God says a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious to him. And I'll tell you what, it's also very attractive. A gentle and quiet spirit describes a woman who is not agitated and not worked up and not anxious, and not fretting all the time, and not in a tizzy about things. Ladies, in case no one in your life has told you, let me be the first to tell you that a woman who is regularly agitated, worked up, anxious, fretting, and constantly in a tizzy is not an attractive woman, no matter what she looks like. She may have external beauty and seem attractive at first, but there's no lasting attraction. If you're that kind of Christian wife, you're not going to have much of an impact on your husband. Then the final principle given for wives in this passage is respect. Verse 5, 
For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Peter uses the example of other godly women from the past who modeled internal beauty and character and respect for their husbands. They were women who trusted in God, which enabled them to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Their trust in God kept them from being agitated, worked up, anxious, fretting, fearful, and constantly in an uproar. A specific example was Sarah. Verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. The passage that Peter is referring to here is Genesis 18, 12. We won't take the time to turn back there. But it is where Sarah, on a specific occasion, talking to herself, after hearing the news that she and Abraham would have a child, she was talking to herself, and she said, in her her doubt that this could really happen, she said, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, what is so significant about that story is that, as I mentioned, Sarah was talking to herself on that occasion. In other words, she wasn't saying that out loud as an outward show. She wasn't saying that so that people would say, oh, what a neat, godly woman. What a respectful. She was talking to herself. It was a reflection of her attitude toward Abraham when she referred to him as Lord with a small l. Sarah was supremely respectful toward her husband, Abraham, and that is what biblical submission looks like. Sometimes godly women will say, and I've had many through the years uh, who've asked me this question, and it's really commendable that they wrestle with it. They say, you know, I want to be a submissive wife, but what does that mean? What, What does that look like practically? How does that flesh out? If you're asking yourself that question, then maybe another way to look at it is to consider what the opposite of submission is. The opposite of submission is a lack of showing respect to your husband. That is why as God summarizes marriage in Ephesians 5.33, he says this. First to the man, he says, Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And then he says this to the wife. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, submission doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean that you never talk. It doesn't mean you never give input. It it means you show respect for your husband. That's biblical submission within the context of a marriage. That's what it looks like. That's what it means. Now, some ladies panic at this point, and they say, whether out loud or to themselves. You know, if that were my attitude in my marriage, my husband would run all over me. If that, if that were my approach in our marriage, my husband would run all over me. I think that's one of the reasons why the end of verse 6 says, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. A wife who hears this instruction from God might be tempted to worry about where such submission might lead. 
That's probably why this phrase is added at the end of the verse. It's as if God is saying to you as a Christian wife, it's important that you don't allow fear to cause you to displease God who gave this instruction. There's also another possibility concerning this final phrase here in verse 6. It may be that Peter adds this phrase because fear is such a dominant part of some women's lives, and fear is, in many ways, the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit. So the Holy Spirit may be encouraging godly women to combat fear in general, not merely the fear of submission to their husbands. Either way, whether it's fear of submission or fear in general, a godly woman will desire to counter that fear to be the kind of woman God has called her to be. So the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Wives, there are three key elements in your relationship to your husband. Behavior, values, and respect. Character, values, and respect. These things ought to be the kinds of qualities that characterize your life. In a past issue of Confident Living magazine, there was an excellent article written by a woman named Susan T. Stevenson entitled, But You've Never Met My Husband. Allow me to quote from part of that article because she says it so much better than I could say it. She writes, If we observe honestly in the light of God's Word, we find today somewhat typical a wife judging her husband's behavior to see how he measures up to her expectations. Then she decides whether or not he is worthy of her respect. Like dangling a carrot on the end of a string, she withholds any semblance of respect for her husband until he has earned it in her eyes. We also find wives occupying themselves with guiding their husbands, directing their husbands, essentially feeling responsible to take care of them and helping them to become better men. In fact, we find wives knowingly or unknowingly taking the place of their husbands' mothers. Like the mom he knew as a boy, the wife praises her husband when he does what she approves of, scolds him in one way or another like an irresponsible child when he displeases her. Frequently, the wife indicates by her actions and words that she feels her husband cannot even think for himself. The wife who feels it necessary to give her husband constant guidance in his decision-making is expressing a lack of respect for him. She questions his actions, makes lots of suggestions that she expects him to follow. In general, She subtly tries to control and manipulate her husband so things will go the way she wants them to go. It is the attitude of her heart that is significant because she doesn't trust God to give leadership through her husband. She communicates that she thinks she knows best. She may not speak the actual words, but her belittling tone of voice or her superior look on her face says to him loudly and clearly, I am right in leadership and decision-making, and you are wrong. She closes her article by saying this, When a wife lacks confidence in her husband's ability to provide leadership in their home, 
She is in essence saying to God, the principles in your word, God, don't work in my marriage. You don't know my husband. And she is thus placing qualifying conditions on obeying the word of God. Things like, I will trust him as my head and respect him only when he begins to say and do what I think he should do. Her list of conditions that her husband must meet in order to qualify respect go on and on and on. But God's word is the perfect standard for our lives because it is truth. It is here we must turn in the midst of a society that scorns respect in marriage and discover what God has said. Wives can choose to obey God's word, directing their actions and attitudes accordingly, trusting God that he will guide their lives through the leadership of their heads, their husbands, end quote. May God grant that women in our church would be raised up to be these kinds of God-honoring and Christ-honoring wives. Women who, as wives, exemplify their Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head in closing this morning, take just a couple minutes to reflect on what you have seen And what you have heard from God's word this morning. Let me begin our wrap-up by saying this. This passage, whether you are a wife or not, this passage illustrates a very important point, and that is God is concerned about our relationships. And God wants our relationships to honor him and to be a testimony for his son, Jesus Christ. So even if you're here today and are not married, don't lose sight of the fact that God God considers relationships important. Friendships, marriage, whatever the relationship is. And our actions in relationships should be controlled by the fact that we know and love Jesus Christ. As Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, Whether you're married or not married, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Not unto people, because you serve the Lord Christ. If your perspective is right, you serve Jesus Christ in your life, in everything. And so God wants us to consider and think about those relationships. Employee relationships, roommate relationships, teammate relationships, marriage relationships, friendships, whatever they are. And God wants us to be the kind of people we ought to be to represent Christ in those relationships. And of course, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian wife, then the texts we have looked at speak specifically to you and to your life situation. My prayer is that you would hear what God has said in his word and seek to be the woman that God has, has planned and stated for you to be. Father, thank you so very much for the practicality of your word. And as we've worked our way through 1 Peter over many weeks now, it's just we never cease to be amazed at how practical, how relevant your word is as it addresses things in our lives, our relationships, our, our work, our, our, how we relate to, to government, how, how many things are addressed by your word. It, it's just it's astonishing. Thank you that you haven't left us 
with a lack of input, a lack of counsel. You have spoken very clearly. The issue is, are we willing to heed? Are we willing to hear? Are we willing to obey? And so, Father, I pray for Christian wives, especially this morning, who have heard you speak through your word. May they be encouraged, challenged to be women of God who reflect the character of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in their lives, just in general, and then also how they relate to their husbands. And then, Father, for those of us who are husbands, we look forward to our text next Lord's Day, Lord willing, where we see what you have called us to be as men, men who love our wives sacrificially, who love with understanding. So, Father, again, remind us that Our relationships in life are important to you. Whatever those relationships are, may we seek to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, in those relationships. And in closing this morning, Father, we want to pray for anyone who is with us this morning who is not in your family, who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit use something that has taken place in our worship gathering this morning to touch his or her heart, to soften, to open his or her heart, the Savior, so that he or she would surrender to Jesus Christ, come to know and love him and follow him forever. We pray these things in his precious, mighty, and exalted name. Amen.